We'll start off by turning to Acts chapter 17. All righty. I hope that um, all of you can enjoy this devotion. Um, hmm. Could I borrow somebody's? I didn't bring in my, my uh, uh, devotion by Walter. Could, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Anybody who's sharing. Okay. Um, let's uh, begin with a, a prayer, if that's okay. Lord and Savior, we pray that we may always have from you the power to be able to repent. May we not see in those words something fearsome, but rather something that a shepherd gently and wonderfully uses as a means of being able to turn the hearts of his sheep back to him. Help us to be contrite, of a contrite heart, sorrowful for what we are and what we cannot be. But also give us that faith that believes that you have become everything for us, that you stand in our stead, that you are the shepherd who protects and guides and governs and watches over sheep that even love to wander. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's, uh, if we can, read that first, just that first paragraph of the devotion of Walter together, if that's okay. When Paul preached the sermon, uh, how about if we wait for everybody to find it? If you don't have it, it's in the back of our Sunday morning uh, study here. Devotions with the Fathers. Okay, on your marks. One, two, three, four. Who are we going to yell for? I get that mixed up. Together, when Paul preached the sermon from which today's reading comes, he was in Athens, a famous and distinguished city. With the words of our text, the apostle demanded repentance, a change of heart and mind from all the people. Isn't that remarkable? Shouldn't there be people who already have the correct mind and therefore do not need repentance and conversion? Shouldn't there be people who, from childhood on, are good and live morally so they do not need to change their mind and continue to live as before? Well, we're going to go to Acts of the Apostles, and I'm going to read from the 16th verse in this way. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was <coughs> excuse me, greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, the Epicureans, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, the Epicureans, um, uh, we will see, uh, generally, um, I guess you might say, morals are oftentimes judged in different ways. Sometimes we judge morals, um, I guess you might say, in a kind of a, a, an intellectual way where we say to ourselves, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that we are not supposed to kill people. It kind of makes sense that adultery is something that actually kind of destroys people's lives. Kind of makes sense that we shouldn't steal. But then it might be things like, 
well, is it okay for our government to maybe take what belongs to people and give it to somebody else, like communism, where you could actually confiscate property? And so, you know, a, a Stoic philosopher would be somebody who would sit back and analyze morality maybe from a kind of a, almost like a scientific standpoint. Um, an Epicurean might be a person who would actually be a little bit more oriented towards the idea of um, experience. Does it please people? So if it pleases people, if it is something which actually brings a kind of a, maybe even a, a, a corporate experience, we have kind of like rock concerts, you know, everybody's just really digging it, you know, and they're getting into the music and really rolling. An Epicurean would really be a person that would say, you know, rock concerts are good. The only problem is, is that back in those days, they, their so-called rock concerts would be these Epicurean feasts, and they would be drinking, and there might be a lot of sex that might go along with it. Well, how can you argue with people voluntarily choosing things that make them feel good? Well, the Stoic would withdraw, and he would say, it's not about feelings, it's about whether or not something is right or wrong. Is it, is it built into the heavens? Is it built into the stars? Is it built into our creation? And so on. So here were these Epicureans. Why would they need to repent? Because of the fact that it was good. It felt good. Why would these Stoic philosophers need to repent? Well, my goodness sakes, there were intellectuals who actually were in favor of morals, as even the Judaic uh, ethic might prescribe. And today, now we probably don't have too much thinking going on out there, but we might look at a lot of people and say, hey, you know what? I just don't know that those are the kinds of people that have to change. I mean, you know, come on. Just, let's just talk about Christianity in a kind of a reasonable way. Let's just say, hey, you know, you're kind of in favor of morals. Why can't you be a Christian? Wouldn't it be a good thing just to be a Christian because you're, you, 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 you favor good things? And why wouldn't you want to be a Christian? We have beautiful music. We, we walk in, we just have this experience of singing these Luther creedal hymns that all five of us know by heart. <laughs> Did you... Get those creedal hymns right. We all. Do you ever notice that we sing we all believe rather than I believe? This actually was the way the creed used to be written. It was always we. There are reasons for that. But we'll talk about that at another time. Let's see what Paul says here. These, these, they say, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And that, that word, uh, my confirmation students should remember it. You want to tell me what it is that the story that I told in the confirmation class? Yeah, no. Yeah, she didn't want to come back anymore if I pick on her anymore. That's what she... The story, of course, is the first marathon, right? Philippides, who ran all the way from the plains of Marathon to tell them the incredible news that the Greeks had conquered the Persians. 200,000 Norwegians had beaten a million of those Persians. Well, Greeks, 
but, you know, we'll take it any way we can get it. <laughs> Not just... Uh, so here come 100 or maybe two. I think it was maybe 100,000 Greeks had won this battle against these Persians. Comes running into the city. The gates are opened. Remember, he ran a marathon. And he comes in and he shouts out, Nenikon, we have conquered. And he drops dead. But when they heard that news, we have conquered, they called that the Oyangelon, the gospel. Same word. We have conquered. They, Paul was there preaching the good news that death had been conquered, that sin had been washed away, that in Christ there was forgiveness of sins, that God had opened up the gates of paradise, and that there was a resurrection of the body. And this is going to be where it is that they're going to have lots of problems. Resurrection of the body. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, they, this Areopagus was this, uh, it was a forum. Um, you know, our universities today, they're supposed to be places that are open to intellectual ideas from all over the world, right? free-thinking universities. Have you heard anything about the possibility that that door has been shut? That our universities aren't open to free-thinking. They are prescribing political speech and so on. The, at least the Greeks were capable of being able to have an open forum. And they were going to put any new ideas to an intellectual test. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, you have to bear in mind, really the philosophies of Aristotle and the philosophies of Plato are so penetrating, so deep, that they have come to actually form probably the two strains of intellectual thought for the past how many thousands of years ever since they were there. Uh, Aristotelianism, Plat uh, Platonic uh, ideas, Platonic thought have actually shaped the entire Western world for the way in which we construct our philosophies, our, our approach to knowledge. These were not dummies. These were intellectual people. He said, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I kind of wish that we would have something of that today. Our newspapers have turned more into uh, soap operas than they are into an exchange of intellectual ideas. But Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. You know, there's always, whenever you make a defense of the faith, it's always you've got to kind of start someplace where you have common identity. You know, there's something that you have in common, some way of connecting to a person. You know, there is one way that sometimes I use that are very effective in reaching people. I say, I like your loafers. Speaking of loafers, how's the job? <laughs> it makes friends for you immediately. But just thought of you try it out. Men of Athens, I see in every way you're religious. For as I walked around, looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription an unknown God. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. He kind of comes in the side door. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Does that suggest that maybe God is a creator? Yeah, uh, you can. Let me tell you, evolutionary ideas uh, have been around even before the time of the Greeks. Evolution is not something which is new to us. It is something that has been there for a very, very long time. And it was, of course, rejected because of the fact that you cannot find in evolutionary theory the dynamics that actually account for the creation of life. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that's beginning to happen today, especially in the area of genetics. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men. But Paul apparently doesn't understand. What one man? He believes in Adam, doesn't he? That they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Kind of the story of the Tower of Babel. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. So there is something there in nature, in creation, that keeps saying, come, find me, look for me. When people get together, I mean, the Tower of Babel, I'm, I'm just digressing here, but with the Tower of Babel, the problem of Babel was that when men get together, and they have this, this, uh, this ability to be able to, I guess you might say, understand each other, to work together, to unite. Uh, they can, we, we can, as a people, achieve unbelievable things. We see it even in our own country. But sometimes the more that we achieve as human beings, the more we think that we are maybe even greater or better than God himself. Who needs God? I've got modern medicine. Yeah, okay. So that will mean that I can someday live to be 120. But I'm going to die anyway, aren't I? I get this false idea that the more that human beings can achieve, the more that we can do, the more that we can build, the greater our accomplishments, the magnificent things that we can accomplish together as a people. And I forget about God. So God at Babel smacks the languages of people and just like a piece of glass he breaks it apart and the human beings scatter and they scatter to the far ends of the earth so that they do not become these arrogant men who are thinking that they can become gods or that they compete with gods but he does it also because by driving them out into creation all of us begin to realize hey wait a minute you know, when you're out there and you're with the kids and you're building the campfire and you're looking up at the stars of heaven and you sit there and you think, how did this come to be? How did this, how did this, what is this universe? Where does it end? Where, these stars, this, this creation, this sun that just burns out there and gives us light. We're just far enough away from the sun to not be eaten up by its power and its energy and its, and its radiation. We're just close enough to be able to actually have life. So, where is this? There was a, Marquardt, Professor Marquardt used to tell a story of a, 
of a Russian astronomer who was an atheist, and he was trying to be able to understand how it is that these, these four laws of thermodynamics, you know, how, how is this whole thing holding together? What gravity, all this stuff that, that makes this universe one? And as he is studying, all of a sudden, it comes to his mind that this is the product of a mind. This wasn't just random chaos. It was a product of a mind. And he said, and I began to pray. Well, is that enough? Paul says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's actually quoting a philosopher. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysus, Dionysus a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So Paul, in a sense, wasn't too successful, but what they couldn't handle was that resurrection from the dead. They could not handle the idea that the body had to be and was going to be resurrected. And if you look at, oh man, I mean, you look at all these religions, human religions, every single religion outside of what we call the pure word of Christianity is religion of works righteousness. What man does ends up being equating with what man gets. That's the natural religion of man. And therefore, if you're good, you get good things. If you're bad, you get bad things. And then when it comes to that last day, who knows? I said, there was a, 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 a Jewish rabbi that I kind of got to be friends with in Connecticut. And I don't know why we were friends, other than the fact that maybe as a rabbi, um, he kind of had, they had a little bit of that distance from kind of the generic culture, religion, where everybody, we're just all, you know, we're, we're, we're just different kinds of crackers. You know, you like premium saltines, and over here is, you know, a different kind of cracker. So we're just, you're Congregationalists, we're Lutherans, we're the Roman Catholics, everybody's a different kind of cracker. Jewish rabbi, you know, we just kind of pull back from that. We come together in the clergy meetings and the Methodist or the, uh, the uh, I remember the, um, oh, the uh, Christian scientist uh, pastor got up and, he, and they would say, let us pray. And we'd all kind of you know, go like this. I wouldn't pray, but I would just you know, kind of show respect, put my head down, and he'd say, 
Mother, Father, God, and the Jewish rabbi and I both, our heads snapped up like this. Um, but anyway, I, 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 we talked about what he believed, and he said, I don't even know if there is a God. I said, what do you mean? You don't even know that there's a God? He's a rabbi. Well, he was a rabbi of a culture of Judaism. And if you know anything about Judaism, both Reformed and also um, uh, conservatives, yeah, Reformed and conservative Jews, both, it's a, it's a question as to whether or not God even exists. This is a religion of culture. So, um, Orthodox, maybe, they, uh, the existence of a God, but uh, this is not uncommon that Christianity is itself being viewed today as a religion of culture. Is there really, really, really a God who made us? Is there a really, really, really a true testimony that comes from Scripture where God reveals himself and makes himself known to us? Is it really, really, really true that our bodies are going to come out of those graves alive because his body came out of that grave alive and that God is interested in every aspect of our physical life, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and everything. And you see, for these Epicureans, it was just, not only was that a problem, but there's a direct relationship between whether or not there's a resurrection and we need to repent. Why? Because natural man, as the scripture says, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. In the same way in which I do not understand how to speak Chinese, it is all mumbo-jumbo to me, it does not connect in my brain, I could not experience or not understand anything that was being said, so also the spiritual things of God cannot be discerned without there being a spiritual transformation. Remember Nicodemus? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You cannot, and he cannot have any understanding of this unless you are reborn. And he goes, do I have to go back a second time into my mother's womb? You know, he just, you know you're talking about, here's an intellectual man, he's brilliant, and he's saying, asking a stupid question like that. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb a second time? Which, by the way, any second now, any minute now, any hour now, I'm going to become a grandfather again. <laughs> my grand, uh, my son's wife, uh, Ashley, is ripe. Um, and she is, um, she is going to be having a baby anytime soon, sometime this week. Anyway, what'd that have to do with anything? I don't know. But let's go back. Some of these questions that we need to, to ask ourselves that's on the little sheet here at the very top, the demand for repentance, what is that? And Paul is telling us that there needs to be Total transformation. Now, there are some people who do not need it. And I think it's a kind of a rhetorical question, kind of a, but it's, it's a question that I think every one of us has to ask ourselves because very often we slip into the idea that our Christianity is something that we just kind of, 
we, we, we believe it because it seems to be the thing that we should believe. Are we, are we believing it because this is actually revealed to us by the Holy Spirit? Is this something that we believe because it seems rational? You know, we, is this something that we believe because, goodness sakes, we're good people and good people believe in good things? No. Every one of us is by nature blind, dead, and enemies of God. There's a, there's a couple that are good friends with our son. Uh, he and his wife are, and um, they have had their second baby. And the other day I said to him, I said, you know, his, his wife is actually, she comes from a Roman Catholic background, and she's agonizing, as are her parents, because he doesn't want his children to be baptized. Do you think that possibly if you comprehended the idea that you are by nature blind, dead, and enemy of God, Paul says that because of sin, death came into the world, can babies die? Just reason backwards. They die because they are inherently not only deficient of righteousness, but they are enemies of God. They are by their flesh, and there has to be a rebirth. Now you say, well, can God create faith in a little baby? What do you think, Christian? Just go like this. <laughs> Whenever I ask you a question, confirmation, just go, yep, yep. <laughs> whatever you are, or you can even say whatever you say, Pastor. That, that'll work, too. <laughs> Blind, dead, and enemies of God, we are, and even a little child is. Can God's word create faith? Of course. Of course, God's word. He can raise Lazarus from the dead. He can make a dead man hear. He can make a little child in the womb of his mother, like, remember, Elizabeth, John the Baptist in the womb, hears the word, and the child rejoices because of the Holy Spirit who actually creates in the child a knowledge that that baby was in the presence of Christ. If that's the case, yes. But if you don't believe that that child needs to repent, how about when that child gets to be 7? How about 14? How about 22? How about 105? Of course, and if it's any time in life, it obviously is necessary even at that time. Now, just I'm going to jump down because I thought this was kind of cool. This, um, you've heard of this Rousseau? He was a philosopher. 1712 to 1778, he lived. And why is he so influential? Well, just to give you a little background, he was born in Geneva. He was a playwright, a composer, like all these guys, great philosophers, were also multi-talented in all different ways. But his three great works, uh, I'm going to probably leave to my wife the pronunciation of these French names. La Voulée, Eloise, did I really kill it? Yeah, I did. Okay, contra, did you say the t, you say contra? Okay, I don't care. Emily. <laughs> All right. So in the first one with Eloise, an emotional love story where passion disregards the barrier of man-made morality. Does that sound a little bit like the Epicureans? 
Contrat so it teaches that all men are born free and that sovereignty is vested in the people. So there comes your French Revolution. Rousseau was kind of the father of that. But this Emily claims to show that if a child is kept from error and vice, it's inherently good-natured developed. What was that, uh, f- that uh, psychologist that had this idea? That you were inherently good by nature? Raj- Carl Rogers, yeah. That it can by itself attain to art, morality, and the sense of God. He denied original sin and asserted that man has good moral impulses by nature. Not only did his theories bear fruit in the excesses of the excess of the French Revolution, but as the apostle of naturalism, his influence continues to the present today. Now, the second part is 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 kind of takes excerpts out of that Emily. And I want to read that because I think this is the prevailing philosophy of today. I think it's the prevailing philosophy. The Confession of Faith of a Savoyard Vicar, which is an interlude in the fourth book of Emily, is the most explicit and formal statement of Rousseau's creed. After satisfying himself that there is a God, the vicar goes on to consider rules of conduct. I do not deduce deduce these rules, he says, from the principles of high philosophy, but I find them in the depth of my heart, written by nature in its ineffable characters. From this, he goes on to develop the view that conscience is, in all circumstances, an infallible guide to right actions. Thanks be to heaven, he concludes, we can be men without being learned. How about that? So you see, the Stoics are on the other side, and, and you kind of look at these at these philosophers, and you just kind of despise them, but it's anti-intellectual. So I want to go to a school that's a party school. How many of you believe that IU is more of a party school than Purdue? How many of you think Purdue is more of a party school than IU? How many of you just simply went to a party school? Oh, you liars. You're just a bunch of... All right, well, despised or dispensed from wasting our life in the study of morals, we have at less cost a more assured guide in this immense labyrinth of human opinion. Labyrinth. Our natural feelings, he contends, lead us to serve the common interest, while our reason urges selfishness. We have, therefore, only to follow feelings rather than reason in order to be virtuous. If men listened to what God says in the heart, there would have been only one religion in the world. Natural religion has the advantage of being revealed directly to each individual. What does that mean? That means there's only one religion in the world. It's the religion that's in your heart. And if you just got rid of reason, if you just got rid of scripture, if you just got rid of Christianity, if you just got rid of everything and just listen to what's in your heart, that's all you need. And that'll lead you to this higher morality. But what my question is, in what way does this teach or make us believe in the resurrection? In what way does this talk about reconciliation with God? It doesn't. It's all in the heart and what the individual thinks is right or wrong. And I think this is what we're up against as Christians. That's why when we're calling for repentance, we're not just asking people to repent of their sins. 
We're asking them to repent of their ethics, of their morals, of their values, of the way that they look at life. The word repentance, metanoeta, means a metamorphosis of the nous, of the mind, of the way in which we think of things. Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. We are living in an upside-down world where everything that is right and true is considered to be wrong and everything that is wrong is called right and true. And so that's why when we call for repentance, we're not just going after somebody to say, oh, I did something wrong before God and I need forgiveness. We are telling you, you must look at life through the clear lens of God's word. And you must think like God. Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. We think like Christ. All right, now, let's real quickly, Martin Luther. The philosoph- this is what, what our, our beloved Martin Luther says. The philosophical judgment about men is to be rejected. It maintains that you may judge by their morals whether men are evil or good. But we should maintain the general judgment of the Holy Ghost which says all men are liars. I think this is that word men also includes women, doesn't it? <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. That is, this is where we're going to stick with gender-specific language. <laughs> and this, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. No, not one. Paul quotes that in Romans. This is the nature we bring with us from our mother's womb, and we keep it until the Holy Spirit improves it. Therefore, <coughs> excuse me, therefore man as man is not to be trusted, even though you have nothing to criticize so far as his moral is concerned. And yet you should not hate him. However evil you judge him to be, you should not desert him because of this wickedness, nor should you despair of his improvement. And this is the question oftentimes that is put to us. Is it possible? Our, higher, our kids went up to the Higher Things Conference, and of course, nowadays, the, the, the topic of all topics is homosexuality, and now even transgenderism. Is it possible for a person who has engaged in that sin to change? Now, we know, I don't know how many people that you have known that are, are in this area of life, but it is, it is known, very often there's a, there's a lot of damage that has been done in a, child's, in, in a person's childhood. And oftentimes, maybe even some abuse that, is, that has caused a very confusion about, I guess you might call some of the natural impulses that they might have in the area of sexuality. But, Never ever in Christianity have we ever said that people are doomed for the rest of their life to being caught in their sin. A person who is an alcoholic, can he change? Yeah, but he's always going to deal with the struggle of his alcoholism, right? A person who is a, a thief, can he change? Yes, but he probably will always have to deal with maybe also some of the shame that came with maybe publicly having been prosecuted for what it is that he did. 
is it possible that a person can literally, truly repent and break free from some of these chains? It is not always easy to get away from the things that we have done. It is not always easy to throw them to the side and say, oh, I can go through life now, is a person who struggles with despair, a person who can get out of their despair. Yes, but for the rest of their life, they will probably struggle with whether or not they will fall back into their despair, right? But we have this promise from our God that we can repent because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that repentance, when we call sin what it is, and we, I guess you might say, when we call it what, it, what God says it is, we also undermine, along with God's forgiveness, we undermine its power. Um, just using alcoholism, just very quickly here, using alcoholism as an example, the person starts off, you know, he takes the drink, but maybe he is raised in a family where drinking was considered to be immoral. You know, I, we, I've, you know, I always talk about those poor Mormons, but it could be Baptists or whatever it might be. The evil to take a drink. He feels guilt. What does he do with his guilt? He usually hides it, right? So the next time that this temptation comes, you know, we, when we were out in Denver and the waitress came down to the Lutheran pastors who were all sitting down there drinking beer, and she said, you know, you're very different from the Baptists. They had their convention here last week. And we said, well, how are we different? You know, is there a doctrine of baptism? Uh, is it, uh, you know, she said, well, she said, well, you Lutherans, when you're down here, you come down and you drink beer here. Down. She said, well, when the Baptists come, we have to bring it to their room. So the sinful nature, you know, says, no, I've got to do that. And then you feel shame. And then you go, it, the shame, it captures you. And you have a much higher chance of becoming an alcoholic if you're raised in a community or a setting or a church or you have morals that actually call that uh, wrong or you have no way of being able to get it out. Now, the person then becomes an alcoholic in a, in, in, under, this, under this weight of not being able to get rid of it. Now, as Christians, what, with the great power that we have is that we can always go before God. And guess what? We get to be able to have all our sins forgiven. And I'll bet you most of us question whether or not they're really forgiven. And that's what faith is supposed to be. We are supposed to, this is what I liked about the Jewish rabbi. The Jewish rabbi said, if, if God really did exist. He said, we wrestle with him. You see in the, uh, things like, like uh, Jacob, remember when he's, at, he's sleeping there and he gets up in the, and there's this angel who comes and he starts wrestling with this angel and he wrestles with him all night long. And in the morning, he's exhausted and the angel just goes and touches his hip and dislocates his hip and he bears that for the rest of his life. Yeah, you wrestle with God. God, why? I need this. God, how come? He's real, see. That's when it is. That kind of prayer in God isn't God. He is real. He's true. 
He's a God who steps into our lives. He wrestles with us, and He should wrestle with us, but we have this promise. He never will leave us. He will never forsake us. He is a God who can and will help us repent. And he, he, it's, he, Luther calls it improvement. He doesn't mean that we're ever able to get rid of our sins. He doesn't mean that it's not going to come back and start biting us in the heels. He means that it's never going to gain the victory over us and that Christ will be able to help us improve our lives. And that's why the, the law is something which is good. It's healthy. It's good for us because it tells us where true happiness is to be found, and that's where those commandments are. Okay, are you tired? I'm, I think I'm wearing you out. I think we've, we've gone just a little too long. But uh, let's take a real quick look and... Let's read together the last two paragraphs of our devotion. And I, I would ask that, that you guys would, um, would join with me in reading that. Therefore, no person can be saved in his natural condition. Everyone must first experience a thorough change in his heart, receive a thoroughly different mind, and obtain a completely different direction for his spirit. God must become his highest good. He must cease to live for this world, focusing instead on the world to come, where he will seek his happiness and his rest for his soul. Thus, he must no longer live for himself. Instead, he must present his entire life as an offering in love to his neighbor. For this reason, Paul once preached in Athens, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. All who have not yet experienced this repentance this change of mind, although they may appear to live as angels in this world, are not true Christians and do not stand before God in grace. Therefore, they are not on the path to blessedness and eternal life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Jesus says, adding, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. According to this, then, the number of true Christians must be extremely small. Even among so-called Christians, there are many who have not yet experienced the necessary change of heart. I don't know if you know this hymn. Therefore my hope is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. It rests upon his faithful word to them of contrite spirit that he is merciful and just this is my comfort and my trust. His help I wait in patience. Amen. God grant it. Thank you very much, everyone. We're going to continue to do devotions with the fathers um, as uh, we go forward in the coming month. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his Amen.